Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Oh, here we are. Hi. In the kitchen. For not many more times. Six, maybe? Six more weeks? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yep. It'll be sad. But I know you have lots of boxes. What's going on with all those boxes? Um, I uh was encouraged because people were like giving me things, but an RV is really small. Yes. So yeah. So I was encouraged to um start a little registry. So I did a registry on um Amazon. No, I no, I get it. You said you, you said you wanted yep. to get me a gift, which I thank you. Very sweet. Yeah, I'm, try, I'm trying to Amazon. do my part. I'm trying to yeah. do my part and not support big tech yeah. if I can. Yeah. Speaking of big tech, I can just tell you that my friend, uh, our friend, um, Martin Green, who runs Indie Birth. Yes. Um, by the time this podcast airs, her podcast that she did, where she talked a little bit about the jab, uh, was banned from Spotify. They took it down. What was the title of it? I don't, I don't, um, I don't even know. What difference does it make? No, I just wondered. Right. <laughs> you can't find it. Um, wow. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's just another reason that the, these companies that have profited unbelievably from the lockdown and from the policies that we have right now, I'm trying to do my best. Yeah. It's not possible always. Yeah. It's, it's to avoid them. Hard. But I get it. So I'm taking you shopping. I'm going to take her to REI, I think, and we're going to go shopping. We'll go. That'll be fun. It's my second favorite store. Besides the one you Besides talked about. Besides the, uh, the, surplus, the <laughs> medical supply surplus store, which is my favorite store. Physical, physical store. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I just love going to REI. When, it, even if I'm not going camping, it makes me feel like I've been camping. <laughs> it's great. It's great. They have such cool stuff there. They do. I want to buy a cook stove and just go out in my back stoop and use the cook stove. <laughs> so, I have a cook stove. You can borrow it. <laughs> uh, no, no, that's not the point. I get it. Yeah. To buy it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're getting some cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, births have been quiet for me this week. You too. Yeah, I only have two births left. Well, you have yeah, you have two with me. I know, but my own. Right. Two two births left, my own, and um, mostly I'm spending time doing the RV, renovating the RV. Yeah, we're going to do one of our podcasts from there. Maybe when it's done. Yeah, when it's done. Right now, I I'm not sitting on a. I'm not sitting on a bench without a cushion. It does not have cushions I know. right now. I saw the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I thought it would be funny to tell people. Why don't you tell people the other day the phone call you got from me? Oh, <laughs> well, it's funnier when you tell it. But but I get a FaceTime call and I, I couldn't pick it up. So then she texts me and says it's urgent. <laughs> so then I immediately hang up what I'm doing. Or fit, I was on another call, I think. And Thank so you. I, I picked it. I called you back <laughs> and... Uh, I think you said, can I FaceTime you? And so I hung up and you called me. Mm-hmm. I'm not a FaceTime person generally. Um, so uh, you told me you dropped something on your foot. Yeah. And you wanted to know if your foot was going to fall off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't go to the doctor. I like, you know, unless I really need to. Like I pretty much heal myself. I like take care of myself. Like I just don't need to go to the hospital or the doctor very often at all. And I had dropped this. It's actually sitting over there. This big accordion with all of the paperwork for the RV directly on the top of my foot and it didn't hurt at all. Yes. I was just like, oh, that was klutzy. And then it started like 
tingly. It was a weird feeling. And I looked down and it had literally like blown up on the top of my foot so fast, like a minute. It was filling with blood, which I know is a hematoma because I've seen hematoma on vaginas. But I literally couldn't cross. I kept thinking like, I'm trying to think about how the body works and if like, if it would continue to fill up or, you know, if it would stop, I like it just, I couldn't, I couldn't, I still, I still think I need to look up like what happens with internal bleeding. Jordan and I were talking about Well, that. this is different than internal bleeding. Internal bleeding is bleeds in into a spa is space where there's nothing to compress it. The, the foot bleeding would eventually stop because the pressure on it would be greater than the venous or the arterial pressure of the little vessel that you broke. Mm. So it eventually stop, but ideally, what you do is you just put pressure on that. I put it up right away, and right? It and, then, it down. and put ice on it. Mm -hmm. I did that, right? And then uh, usually, and, and your foot I see is still there. <laughs> My have, foot is still there. You, yeah, you don't have to show it. It's um, better. Right. It's on. We're on. Uh, we're on sort of radio here, aren't we? We are on radio, and I'm sure that the little clip of me showing the foot won't make it to Instagram. Well, the foot didn't, the foot didn't make it onto the camera, so. Um, but yes, your foot is still there. So uh, once again, I felt vindicated by being right. It's nice being right. I was. I, I hate, was. I hate being wrong. I was definitely <laughs> racking my brain when you didn't pick up. Who do I know as a doctor? Who do I know as a doctor? Um, but arnica, I put it up. I iced it. Did great. But then when I took the arnica, it almost immediately got better. So. I'm a, I'm a believer in Arnica. It's a homeopathic. Mm -hmm. If you guys don't know, um, I do use it in birth. Big fan. Yeah. It's just, it's just, a, it was a freak accident because normally if you drop something on your foot, you're not going to get a huge hematoma. It just, because you don't have a bleeding disorder. I mean, if you had hemophilia or if you had a a, some sort of thrombocytopenia, that could happen, but you don't have that because if you had that, you'd be getting spontaneous bloody noses. You'd be, your gums would bleed when you mm -hmm. brush your teeth, uh, that sort of thing. So this just happened to hit you in exactly the wrong spot. Anyways, thanks um, for picking up. You're welcome. <laughs> that's the most exciting thing that's happened for me this week, you guys. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. We're gonna we're gonna get into a real discussion today about twins. I've got some statistics for you on my twins, but I I got into this. I want to get into this topic because I posted a post on Mother's Day of all days of me holding a set of twins. Mm -hmm. on Instagram. And of course, my Instagram goes to faith, my automatically goes to Facebook, which I think I got to do something about that because there yeah, are, there are, there, I know you can, mm -hmm. there are a set of trolls that just do not like when I talk about twins. They've got an ax to grind. They've had personal sad experiences, but they are so vicious and mean. And so I'm, I want to get into a little bit more about twins. I've got ACOG's twin guidelines. I'm going to go through that. I'm going to read some of their comments to me, which you guys will find interesting. And I'm going to then talk a little bit about uh, a big twin study that was reported in the New England Journal several years ago. So we can talk about what's really fact-based and not this vile, venomous stuff that, that they put up there. So I want to do that because I've been, you know, I'm one of the only people around here that's still doing twins. And the idea of me doing them in the home setting has really a lot of people freaked out. Mm -hmm. And I would say, like I say with breach delivery, and I've, you've heard me say this uh, dozens of times, it, it's even in the documentary. I say all things being equal, breach delivery should be done in the hospital where you have emergency help to be immediately available. The problem is, of course, what? That no, they messed that, it up. Well, no, they're not doing them. Oh, they're not doing that. Right. Yeah, they section people. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. They, there's people out there that say that, you know, some of the, you'll see, some of the people think that 
all these types of twins should be sectioned. So we're going to talk and get into the, the thing that bugs them the most <clears throat> is about chorionicity. So I'll get into talking about chorionicity, which is the amnion and the chorion. We'll so talk about wait, that. wait, before you jump into it. I'm not going to jump into it yet, but go ahead. Oh, okay. What I'm going to say is from a midwifery perspective, twins is a variation of normal, just like breach is a variation of normal. Women have been having twins for a long time. We have more incidents <laughs> of twins yes. because of IVF. So there are more cases of twins and multiples now than historically. Yeah. Do you know that twinning also increases with advanced maternal age? Yes. So we have, since we have people having babies later, there's also, that also is influencing it, but IVF has been the big. And those wouldn't be identical, right? That's because they probably dropped. No, identical is a random, identical is a random event. Mm -hmm. It's an egg splitting and that's not something that's genetic or predictable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The idea of having die-die or fraternal or non-identical twins is thought to be sometimes hereditary in the women's superovulate. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, but in midwifery, they teach you that this is a variation of normal, huh? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. And so here in, in California and LA specifically, which is what we know, um, you know, it's not legal for midwives to be able to deliver twins. And then, as you said, you're a obstetrician who is one of the last people in our area to be doing vaginal twin deliveries. And you're the only person to be doing them at home. But if we look at other places in the country, um, midwives attend twin births on a, on a regular. They're, they, they, it's not anything to be afraid of, or, um, you know, we, want to track the growth of the babies a little bit more just to make sure that we're not dealing with twin twin transfusion syndrome for mono die twins. Yeah. Right. Um, but we don't know that always because there's not always. Well, yeah. And, that, and that's one of the things that's in, in your, yes, in your, in your mm-hmm. world, that's true. Mm-hmm. In my world, you know, if I didn't know what kind of twins I have, mm-hmm. that would be, it, it would be more difficult for me to take them on. Mm-hmm. All right. One of the big issues that some of the trolls have is that I don't differentiate when I'm posting a picture of a family with twins of what kind of twins they had. Mm-hmm. As, you know, when I my comment is about that I'm there to celebrate the fact that this family had had a beautiful birth with twins and it can be done. And their point is that well, it shouldn't be done, right? Because it's dangerous, and just because people have them doesn't mean they didn't get lucky, and um, they're sacrificing the health of their future family or their own vanity, that sort of thing. Great. I'm glad you're going to get into it. But what am I going to say about that in terms of a woman's choice? I don't know. You're going to say it's a woman's choice. It's a woman's choice. <laughs> so was that a, I, I was trying to think, is that a, is that a trick question? Is you do that to, to me too sometimes too, yeah, by the way. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, what if, what if somebody, why do they have an opinion about what someone else, the choices that some other woman Mates. Because generally it's because they themselves have experienced somewhere in their family a bad outcome and, and therefore they've made it a mission yeah. to uh, prevent anyone else from having a bad outcome. Well, informing people, educating people, I totally get because we believe in informed consent. So, But, but remember in a previous podcast, we talked a little bit about how do you approach somebody with a different opinion or a different point of view from yours. And it's certainly not <laughs> by screaming at them and calling them names and calling them, you know, and, and all that stuff. It's more, it's more by asking them a question, like, what do you value? What, why is it that you want to do this? 
these sorts of things. And I really would like to have a dialogue with some of these people, but I've known from past history that you can't. Because if you respond to them, all it does is inflame them more. Yeah. Even if you say, I hear your point very much, I just disagree with you, um, blah, blah, blah. They will say, well, you disagree with me because you're an idiot. That's what they'll say. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, did you want to talk, you wanted, before we get into that, you wanted to say a couple things about um, passports? There is a Instagram account called the Passport Resistance. And um, I think that that's, the thing that I feel most passionate about is um, the fact that regardless of what your decision is about vaccinating or not vaccinating, um, having a passport to de delineate whether or not you can participate in life. We're not even talking about getting on an airplane. We're talking about getting jobs, um, going into an event. Um, being able to go to school, you know, any of these things um, will start to create um, two societies, two, you know, like, uh, what do you call it? Discrimination. And so I believe in medical freedom and I believe in um, us being able to make a decision about what happens with our own bodies. And I think that I have personally spoken to people who did not necessarily feel like they were ready to, to take the vaccine because we just don't know enough yet, um, but felt pressured because of some of these societal things. So they made those decisions. So if that's something that you're interested in, go and check out Passport Resistance. Um, and then the other thing I passed along to you, and it seemed like you liked it, was the Russell Brand video yeah. that came out mm -hmm. talking about um, the same topic. So um, just vaccine passport. So if you want to hear, he's just I love the way that he explains things. He's just so clear and concise and it doesn't feel inflammatory and it really is. Right. And, he, and he can, he's cross-generational too. So that, that, you know, if you try to get some old, old guy explaining this to millennials, but he crosses into that age mm -hmm. group and he's really often directing what he says, especially to the younger people, mm -hmm. because they're the ones that really are being forced into doing these things for social reasons as opposed to medical reasons, because there really is very little medical reason for a healthy 25 year old to get this vaccine. Yeah, and they just get sound bites too. They're not getting a lot of like real information. Um, you know, like I think the perspective that I got from that video is like, ask questions, like think beyond this, look historically, like let's not just, you know, do this based on a whim, but really like do your due diligence. So that's it. Right. So sound bites is a good segue into this one little thing that I that I got today on my email. This is from UCLA. Mm -hmm. Tell me what just my, our, our listeners can't see this picture, but just describe what you're seeing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, it's an attractive woman um, who's got very young woman. And she's young, yep. And she's got part of her um, shirt kind of pulled down over one shoulder, smiling with a really cute blue band aid. Right. She seems happy. And this is a notice that was a general mailer from UCLA to that the FDA authorizes the Pfizer COVID nineteen vaccine for all adolescents. Mm. The FDA authorized the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine for emergency use in adolescents 12 through 15. Aren't we lucky? Yeah. So here we are once again. They're, I mean, they're looking to get people to come in to get the vaccine. I suppose even if it's a free vaccine, there must be some monetary value for them to do it. Or they, either that or they're just completely committed to the idea that 12 to 15-year-olds now need the vaccine. And they're putting out sort of a public service announcement with this very attractive 
uh, <laughs> woman with her blue Band-Aid. <laughs> yeah. Why do we need... Marketing. Yes, I was going to say public service, but marketing is a better word. That's why, are, why are we marketing something like this? Mm -hmm. that's, yep. that's, well, what, what's your answer to that? <laughs> that was a question. <laughs> um, why? I, because people need to be persuaded. And um, why is that? And I saw that somewhere. It said, if this is a, if this is a true pandemic, why do we have so much propaganda and marketing and like, you know, why is it like, like billboards, your billboards and like, you know, what do they call those that you put on? Like when they're doing um, construction, they used to do them for like movies and stuff a lot, but those advertisements that like they go across. Chirons. Yeah. I didn't even. At I'd the never, bottom of your TV screen. No, 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 oh. no. Um, they're like, they put up the plywood and then they put the advertisements on them in oh, front of buildings. Posters, I guess. Or, yeah. Yeah. So I've seen so many of those about, you know, mask wearing, vaccines, you know, all of that. And it just seems very interesting to me. Yeah. And here's, the, here's some quotes for the day. This is, I, this is from H.L. Mencken. H.L. Mencken was a satirist and a journalist in the early 1900s. Again, there, how many, if you look back and you see the wisdom of people who lived in an era, because the things that are happening now, we think they're novel. But yeah. they're not. If you look at history. Yeah, right. they've all happened before. Mm -hmm. So we've made it through them. So I think we'll hopefully make it through this one too, in one piece. But he said, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. Hobgoblins. The, the English language was great back then too, wasn't it? <laughs> right. And this, this to all experts out there, you know, and you can even include me in that if you want to. But is the classic fallacy of our time that take a moron and run them through a university and decorate them with a PhD, will that thereby cease to be a moron? And that's not true either, right? Yeah. Right. Just because you have a PhD does not make you intelligent or, or wise. Makes you a PhD. Exactly. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about twins today. Twins. Uh, twins. So I'm trying to figure out which one to go through first. Maybe I'll read one of the... Um, comments to one of my beautiful posts about a family that had twins a month or two ago. Okay. Okay. You can find this on my Facebook page. It's also on Instagram, not the comment, <laughs> the picture. <laughs> okay. It's all of us sitting there on the bed with the twins after it was like at the postpartum visit, I think uh, a couple of days later, this is from Alyssa May Bradley. Okay. While we are discussing informed decision-making, do you even touch on the fact that monochorionic twins should 100% not be birthed at home, let alone vaginally. You have a habit of lumping all twin types together, don't you? Question mark. Mono-die and mono-mono twins are exponentially more risky than die-die twins. I haven't seen you mention any of these risks associated with vaginal birth of monochorionic twins. That's part of informed decision-making. Your job is to make sure the mother, she's telling me what my job is, by the way. I love that. Your job is to make sure the mother is aware of the fact that choosing to deliver vaginally with mono die or mono mono twins is gambling with her baby's lives. It's not just some small risk of NICU or longer healing, it's life and death, three exclamation points. I love the idea to advocate birthing at home, but you need to clarify that it is only an option for die die twins and singletons. The fact that, you, well, the fact that she says it's for die die twins, that's actually a, a plus. So thank you, Alyssa, for that. The fact that you don't is negligent and disgusting. 
And she doesn't know what informed consent you give when you're no, because caring it's a, for someone. Because it's a Facebook post. Yeah. But she's also wrong. So tell us why. She's correct about mono-mono twins. Yes. Mono-mono twins have a high mortality rate. They generally don't make it to term. They they, off, they almost all are delivered by, they should all be delivered by cesarean, except by if there's an accident. And they should never be delivered outside of a hospital, that sort of setting. But she's absolutely wrong for mono Okay. Chorionic diamniotic twin. So I will explain that. Yeah. So explain for if for very new viewers um, or people who are not, you know, uh, birth professionals, the difference between those. Okay. The baby sits inside a bag of waters, and the bag of waters is a two-layered sac with the inside being the amnion and the outside being the chorion. Right? That's normal. Sometimes we even notice that because sometimes women will be in early labor or prior to labor, they'll think they broke their bag of waters and they'll leak this fluid and it might even test positive on the amnio test. So you think they're ruptured and then they may go into labor that day. And then, you know, you check them finally and they're eight centimeters and the big bulging bag of waters. And yeah. it's like, well, how can there be a bulging bag of waters? And then we say something like, well, maybe it's sealed over. And maybe it did, but most likely what happened is that the chorion gave way and there's yeah. a tiny bit of fluid Usually it disappears, but sometimes the fluid remains. There's a tiny bit of fluid between the amnion and the chorion, and maybe that's what leaked out. Yeah. So that happens. In twins, when you have two eggs that get fertilized, each egg is going to have its own amnion and chorion. All right. They're separate. They have separate placentas. There's no chance of those two placentas communicating. And the big problem in monochorionic pregnancies, which is where they only have one outside sac, but they're each in their own amniotic sac. So that's called monochorionic diamniotic, okay? Um, and that's about 20 to 25% of twins. About 70% of twins are di-di. Separate, completely. Right, mm -hmm. non-identical, fraternal, whatever mm -hmm. word you want to use. Mm -hmm. And about 25% uh, or 20% are identical, okay? And so they're, they're in one chorion and two amniotes, so they share a placenta. And in, in a certain percentage of time, somewhere between 13 to 20% of the time, there can be what's called um, a shunt between the two, the two placentas where, where it develops and, and they develop this thing called twin-twin transfusion syndrome. But when that doesn't develop, right, and you have you know, monochorionic diamniotic twins, then there's really no significant difference, right? The problem is it can develop at any time, so you need to survey them a little bit closer than you would with uh, di-di twins, but you don't need to deliver them by cesarean section. They certainly can deliver vaginally, and I have data for that. I'm gonna go over that now. Okay, and the reason why, I understand if they're sharing a sac that there can be more issues um, with, with their growth and all of that. That's why they're oftentimes women are in the hospital sooner, all of that. Why could they not have a vaginal delivery if they get well we'll get we'll, we'll get to that but okay. uh, but but the main reason that they wouldn't have a delivery is because one of the twins is struggling and um if, if they develop even if they don't have ttts or twin twin transfusion syndrome uh there if if their babies are discordant but if babies are discordant but growing well on their own growth curve we've had that acog and the new england journal article of the, of the twin birth study do a, a think that that's absolutely fine. And we've had that. Mm -hmm, we, we have. We've been, we've considerably. Been, we even had her on our podcast way back when. I don't know if you were doing when Sarah was on one time with us. I don't remember. I don't you, remember. you may not have been the host at that time. Yeah. It might have been before you were talking. Yeah. 
So let's talk. So there's a, uh, there was an article that uh, came out in, um, let's see, let me find the, uh, it's called the Twin Birth Study. And it was a fairly randomized trial of planned cesarean or vaginal delivery for twin pregnancies. So it compared the type of twins with, um, not the type of twins, but whether you were gonna deliver, a, uh, all twins should be delivered by cesarean or all twins should be delivered vaginally, sort of like the term breach trial, mm -hmm. um, except that this one was better controlled and didn't have the flaws of the term breach trial. And they, they, they took, uh, well, let's talk about it. So 2013, right. It's, it's, it was out of Canada, but it was uh, 106 centers in 25 countries. So uh, they randomly assigned women between 32 weeks and zero days and 38 weeks and six days of gestation with a twin pregnancy with the first twin in cephalic presentation. Mm -hmm. So they're only taking twins where the first twin was in the cephalic or head down, head down, uh -huh. head down to plan cesarean section or plan vaginal delivery with cesarean if indicated. Elective delivery was planned between 37 weeks and five days and 38 weeks and six days. So they did not induce everybody at 37 weeks with twins. They let them go to 38 weeks and six days if they were in the planned vaginal delivery group, mm -hmm. okay? The primary outcome was a composite of fetal and neonatal death or serious neonatal morbidity with the fetus or infant as the unit of analysis for the statistical comparison, whatever that means. Okay, so the, the primary outcome was a composite of fetal, fetal and neonatal morbidity in the first, uh, I think, 30 days of life. They followed the babies for the first month, okay? What they found in, in summary was there was no significant difference in the composite primary outcome, which is fetal morti mor mortality and morbidities. Mortidity. <laughs> Can I say that? You just uh, did. <laughs> between the planned C-section group and the planned vaginal delivery group. So that- Great. Right. So right there, no and then significant difference. anybody who says that properly selected twin should it should all be sectioned is wrong. And I, you know, there are articles that support doing C-sections for all twins. And so again, I've said many times in my profession, nothing is ever black and white. You should never say never and never say always. Okay. But, to, but for someone to say that all twins hundred percent should be delivered by cesarean, if they're monochoriotic diamniotic, or we call mono die is wrong. So Alyssa, I'm sorry, but you're you're not right. And again, how you interpret how we tell people these this information from a Facebook post and your presumptions, I'll just leave it at that. I think okay. everybody everybody knows what I'm talking about. Okay. So they use a word here that interesting it's interesting to me. Because of assisted reproductive technology, twin pregnancy occurs more frequently now than in the past. And it complicates two to three percent of all births. Okay. What word did I not like there? Complicated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just even the, using the term complicates two to 3% of all births. It's just, it shows the mentality that they're talking about. Yes. Right. Twins are at higher risk for an adverse perinatal outcome than singletons. That is true, but it's not specific. So you can't just judge that. And you can't say that as a broad statement. You have, I mean, it's, it's true as a broad statement, but it also you need to individualize your care. And we've always said that the midwifery model allows us to do that. Okay. Despite the lack of evidence to support a policy of planned cesarean section for twins at or near term, the rates of elective cesarean section for twins have increased in North America and worldwide. Okay, so they conducted this study to determine whether or not the trend where 90% of twins are now being sectioned is actually a, ra a rational, reasonable trend. And this was in 2013. And even though this came out and said that there's no difference when you select your twins properly, the C-section rate for twins is still rising. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Because there's a there's a higher incidence in general. And no, and, no, and because they're not they're not teaching the skills, they're not teaching the confidence to 
to do this, even in head down twins, which is the majority of twins. The first twin is head down. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for both die-die and mono-die twins, we're included in the study. All right. Women were eligible for the study if they had a twin pregnancy between 32 weeks and zero days, 38 weeks and six days. The first twin was head down. Both fetuses were alive. And the estimated fetal weight was between 1,500 grams and 4,000 grams. So 1,500 grams is about three pounds, five ounces, all the way up to about eight pounds, 15 ounces. At turn? No. Okay. From 32, you know, anywhere from 32 weeks on. Yeah. So they would deliver babies at 32 weeks, 33 weeks on if they were, they came in in labor, head down, depending on which group they were randomized to. If they were randomized to the C-section group, they would go to a C-section. If they ran to the vaginal delivery group, they would go to the vaginal delivery group. And as long as the babies were fine and labor progressed, they would allow them to labor vaginally. And then they would compare the outcomes. (laughs) It, It makes, it makes, this is how you determine whether something is safe or unsafe. To just say it because somebody had a bad experience or bad outcome, I mean, we wouldn't allow any woman to ever deliver anyway, ever, ever again. And we would never get in a car or leave the house or, you know. Right, because there's yeah. been bad outcomes with cesareans, there's been bad outcomes with vaginal deliveries, there's yeah. been bad outcomes at home, and there's been bad outcomes uh, in the hospital. You can't control it. Right. Life happens. Okay, so women were randomly assigned to plan cesarean section or plan van through. Now, this is necessary, but it does not account for motivation. In my, That's what I said. That's my opinion. All right. You're putting somebody who may have be fearful and she gets, she draws the vaginal delivery straw and she didn't want a vaginal delivery. Yeah. Right. The C-section group. I mean, you may have somebody who's aggravated because she got stuck in the C-section group and didn't want it, but it's not like she at least doesn't have to go through labor scared. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Participating centers assessed fetal growth and well-being with the use of ultrasonography at least every four weeks and with a non-stressed or biophysical profile test twice weekly if needed. And I stress the if needed part. And when we get to ACOG's guidelines, which some of my trolls love to quote ACOG, they love to point that out. Um, We'll go through what ACOG says about twins. So we'll make that clear. Um, They were prepared to perform, and you need to be able to prepare to perform a cesarean section within 30 minutes. So again, all hospital births, obviously not home births. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not saying that I expect any data anywhere to support home birthing for twins because the the organized medical community isn't going to do that. Yes. But let me just talk about the 30 minute rule for a second, because that's a placebo, I think, when they say that. You know why that's a placebo? I don't know what you mean in that instance about placebo. Okay. Um, to have the ability to do a C section within 30 minutes, mm-hmm. 30 minutes is way too long if you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a baby that's heart rate drops to 60 or it's cord prolapses, and his heart rate drops. You don't have 30 minutes. You don't have 30 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's just, that was a guideline they have for those rare cases of emergency. But what I'm saying it's a placebo is it, it, it may help in some cases, but it's not going to help in all cases. Okay. They have to have anesthesia, obstetrical, and nursing staff available in the hospital. That's right. Um, elective delivery by means of either cesarean section uh, or labor induction was planned between 37 weeks and five days and 38 weeks and six days of gestation. So if you're in the planned C-section group, you might get a C-section scheduled at 38 weeks and two days. It's probably whatever the hospital convenience and stuff like that. They didn't section all uh, the twins for section at 37 weeks and then let all the other people just wait for labor, which what the term breach trial did, mm-hmm. because we know that the longer you go, even, even, even still at early gestational age, the more likely you are to have a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
less NICU admissions, but worse outcomes. If the first one was delivered, <laughs> here's one, here's one, yikes. I put yikes as my comment here. If the first twin was delivered vaginally in a woman with a planned cesarean group, a cesarean section was attempted for the second twin. Wow. No, I said, yikes, you said, wow. <laughs> if logistically possible, they said. So mm. yeah, so that is, uh, that's interesting. I mean, at that point, they, I guess they, because they're randomized and they're in a study, they have to section the second twin. But if the first one fell out that fast, just God, <laughs> they did that had a section for the second twin. Yeah. I didn't have to, they did it because that was their for randomization. Right? Uh -huh. Okay, so for outcomes, uh, for the present analysis, mothers and infants were followed until 28 days after delivery. Mm -hmm. The primary outcome was a composite of fetal neonatal mortality or serious morbidity. Uh, neonatal mortality was assessed for the period from zero to 27 days after birth. And serious neonatal morbidity was defined as one or more of the following. And it's just the usual things, but it's spinal cord injury, depressed skull fracture, fracture of a long bone, uh, injury to the peripheral nerves like a brachial plexus or the facial nerve, uh, presence at least 72 hours after the, um, of age or at the time of discharge from the hospital, a subdural intracerebral hemorrhage confirmed by a CT or ultrasonography, APGAR score of less than four at five minutes, coma, stupor, decreased, decreased response to pain, so, you know, all the things that we talk about, okay? It was very well defined. The need for assisted ventilation with the use of endotracheal tube inserted within 72 hours after birth and remaining in place for at least 24 hours. Okay. The reason I, I say that that was well-defined is because in the term breach trial and other things, often they just say the need for assisted ventilation and they don't define it. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about this before. Assisted ventilation could be you leaning over the baby and giving it some yes. rescue breathing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So because technically that's assisted ventilation and they don't define it here. It's very well defined. And so they, they looked at those sorts of things. So uh, another outcome was a composite of maternal death or serious maternal morbidity, hemorrhage exceeding 1500 cc's, need for blood transfusion, need for a DNC, laparotomy, genital tract injury, intraoperative damage, third or fourth degree perineal laceration, thromboembolism, uh, or systemic infection in the mother or DIC, bowel obstruction, wound infection. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. So it seems very, it, uh, I, I, they have a whole chat, a whole section on the statistical analysis, which I will not bore you or listeners <laughs> with, but cause I don't even understand it. I mean, it's hard. It's the part that you're supposed to read, but it, it talks about all the methods. I don't really understand the methods, mm -hmm. but it seems well thought out. And um, I'll leave it at that. So we said it was 106 centers, 25 countries. Um, Looking at some of the graphs they gave us, they had 61% uh, in both groups were multips. Mm -hmm. So very equal in mm -hmm. both groups. And mm -hmm. you're nodding because you're looking at these numbers with me. I am. Right. So yep. you're my witness. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, only 7% of the C-sections were V, I mean, of the C-section, of the twins were V-back attempts. Mm -hmm. All right. They don't talk about the success rates and they don't really differentiate between primips and multips in their success rates. But this is just their demographics. Mm -hmm. Dichorionic and diamniotic twins were 69% in both groups. Okay. And monochorionic and diamniotic twins were 24% in both groups. Yep. Right? Yep. Okay. So they they had in each group over had over 300 monochorionic diamniotic twins 
and in the they and they allowed the, the 326 in the vaginal delivery group to labor vaginally. Mm -hmm. Again, to some of the detractors who think that all monochorionic diamniotic twins should be sectioned, that's not the prevailing thought in the right. medical world. Right. So I'm not sure where they got that. They may have got that from their physician who might have said that because we, as we know, through the dumb doctor do uh, dogma segment and other things too, is that doctors say really stupid things sometimes. Yeah, and that can really affect um, your thought process if you don't look deeper into it. If somebody like a doctor that you really respect says something that may not be based on any science, um, then that could be what you're telling everybody you come into in um, connection with. Right, we are, we are a product of our life experiences. That's what we are. So, yeah. but we have to be smart enough and be wise enough to be open to the fact that not everyone has lived your life experience. Right. And I mean, we've talked about it in, in previous podcasts as a provider, if you have a bad outcome or you have something that was really intense for you as a provider, sometimes you can start to not have confidence in that as being something that is safe. And, you know, and so that's dangerous. Yeah, it's human nature. And, you know, we all like, we all have our biases. We talked about in the informed consent podcast. We, we have our biases, but we're supposed to put our biases aside, but that's not possible. Mm -hmm. It's not possible. Right? When you have a bad experience or bad outcome, it, it does, it has to affect the way you, proceed with the rest of your life it just does yeah compartmentalizing is is what you have to do in our profession in a lot of professions you have to compartmentalize mm -hmm. right okay so um they looked at the frequency of the composite primary outcome in both groups and it did not differ significantly between the planned cesarean group and the planned vaginal liver group and we took we went through the whole what the um composite primary outcomes were all those things with the fetus no difference. Right. Okay. There was no significant difference between the planned cesarean delivery and planned vaginal group in the frequency of maternal composite outcomes either. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I highlighted it, but somewhere in here, it did say something like the second twin was more likely to experience a problem. Right. Than the Which first is what twin. we see too. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's known. So little, little midwifery wisdom thing thrown in there. I've talked to your clients and you about this before, but, um, you know, the midwives that I learned from were midwives that had done twin deliveries many times like this before it became illegal here in California and in Oregon, when I was training, it wasn't illegal either. So I learned from midwives who had a lot of, um, twin experience. And one of the things that they say about that is that you have the babies in the womb together and then one baby's gone. Mm -hmm. So from a more holistic perspective, that baby is having an experience of like what just changed, like, right? <laughs> yeah. Their little buddy is gone. There's more room. They're all of a sudden, it just feels different yeah. to them. So a lot of times they would tell us to like, you know, have the mom or you connect with the baby and just, you know, um, give them confidence that everything is fine. And we've talked too about the baby's experiences being more primarily what's happening with the mom than their own experience. So a lot of times she could just reassure them. Yeah. And, and you know what, that is, that is the midwifery models. One of well, they have, there's many beauties to the midwifery model. That is one of them is that 
when you guys, I watch you guys, when you guys are going to feel the baby or you're going to listen to the baby, a lot of you will lean over and you say, okay, so I'm going to touch you right now. I'm going to touch your mom's belly and I'm going to move you or you talk to them. Mm -hmm. And we encourage the parents to talk to the baby too. And sometimes we even will have the dad in labor or whatever else reassure them, but we'll have them talk to the baby. It's certainly not something that was taught in the medical model at all. I mean, I never was asked to lean, you know, to lean over and talk to the baby. Did something. <laughs> I would love it if, if, if OBs were for sure, because they are already people. They're already, you know, it's, well, it, they, even though they don't have language, they're already experiencing and having sensations and feelings. It's not like they come through the, through the portal, through the v- vagina. And all of a sudden now they are having a human experience. They're having a human experience in utero. Right. Right. And they, they, they're, they get comfortable with familiarity. I think we all do. Yeah, it's their own only reality. We That's all, all they do. Know. We like our routines. <laughs> so when routines are disrupted, it's nice to be able to have someone to talk to, to be reassured. <laughs> right. Like when something, like when you drop something on your foot. Yes. yes. Like when you drop something <laughs> on your foot and you think that it's going to fall off. Right. Yes. If you were all by yourself and couldn't talk I to was. anybody else about it, you'd be freaking out a little bit. And I you was. was. And you were. And you was. And you was. <laughs> you was. Okay. So just an, another thing about this, I just looked in there. The success rate of their vaginal twins was only 56%. 50. Success of vaginal. Okay. Yeah. Which is not great. Yeah. Not great. I'll go through mine in a second. And then. So there was no. Uh, there's no difference in mortality and morbidity, but they didn't always have the vaginal delivery. No, no, of course not. They, yeah. yeah, of course. When you randomize to the vaginal delivery group, you're still going to have a percentage that end up with C-section. In this case, it was um, <laughs> 39.6% ended up with a cesarean for both. And that was for obstetrical indications, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. 4.2% ended up with a vaginal delivery for the first one and a cesarean for the second one. 4.2? 4. 4.2%. 4. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm not, and this is in the vaginal delivery group. So you have to wonder the first one came out and the second one. And, and again, they, they purposely had centers where they had skilled practitioners for these sorts of things. Yeah. So 4% of the time they're saying that they couldn't, they, they the skilled practitioner decided it was better to go do a C-section for baby B than reach up and get it. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Um, and again, I want to emphasize the fact that that 23.3% of the vaginal, excuse me, um, 23.3% of the babies that were in the vaginal group were monochorionic diamniotic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's about the incidence of that in the general population, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, lots of graphs here. I skipped over these because it's hard to do. Okay. So there were no significant interactions for the primary outcome between treatment group and parity. All right. So even though they didn't give you numbers of, of success rates with multips and primips, they said that, that the morbidity for primips was not worse than the morbidity for multips. Right. Which is good mm-hmm. because I, you know, it is primips are, are different than multips. The success rates are less. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more work. It, for is. Everybody. it takes longer. The pushing phase usually is longer. Yeah. Uh, Gestational age, uh, these are all things that there were no significant interactions for the primary outcome. Gestational age didn't matter. Maternal age didn't matter. Presentation of the second twin did not matter. Mm-hmm. Chorionicity did not matter. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, or the national perinatal mortality in the mother's country of residence. All right. So even in, even in lower resource countries, um, the, the numbers were you know all consistent. 
They didn't find that there was more morbidity in the vaginal delivery group or the C-section group, even in countries that were not first world. I'm glad that they put that in there, but yeah, delivering a baby is delivering a baby. Right, but C-section is often worse in a, in a, in a third world country. Yeah. The morbidity is much higher. Mm-hmm. They didn't find that either. So yeah. that's actually that's actually good. Yeah. The second twin was more likely to, oh, that's, yeah, they did say that. The second twin was more likely than the first twin to have a primer, have one of the primary outcomes. Odds ratio was 1.9. So tw- almost twice as likely to have one of the bad outcomes than the first twin. Mm-hmm. But didn't matter in either group. So doing a C-section didn't lower your morbidity for the second twin. Very important. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, it's, I'm supposed to read this one, so let me read this. Because <laughs> I wrote read. <laughs> I go over these. It takes me like prepping for the show. It takes me a while when we're doing stuff like this, when we're, when we're yeah. just John and I don't think about it. But yeah. In this large randomized trial, comparing delivery strategies for twins between 32 and 38 weeks, planned cesarean section did not reduce the risk of fetal or neonatal death or serious neonatal morbidity as compared with planned vaginal delivery. We found a higher risk of an adverse perinatal outcome for the second twin then for the first twin, as others have found, however, this planned cesarean section did not reduce this risk. That's just what I said. It's awesome. I love that. There has been controversy regarding the safest method for the delivery of twins at or near term. A policy of planned cesarean section for the delivery of twins gained support after the publication of the term breach trial. Okay. Further support for planned cesarean section has come from large cohort studies of twins showing a reduced risk of an adverse perinatal outcome with elective cesarean section as compared with vaginal delivery or emergency cesarean section, which is why many doctors are, are, are repeating this that information. There are several possible reasons why our results differ from previous observational data. We avoided selection bias because they randomized their people weeks ahead of time, not, in the when, they, not when they came in labor. In the term breach trial, people were randomized when they showed up in labor. Mm-hmm. Okay, We ensured the presence of an experienced obstetrician at the delivery, mm-hmm. which the term breach trial did not. And many of our twins in our study were born preterm. And I'm not sure I understand why that fits. So if you can think about that for a second, mm-hmm. why that makes it more accurate. We did not find that planned cesarean delivery was associated with a higher or lower risk of maternal death or serious maternal morbidity than planned vaginal delivery. This finding may be explained in part by the high rate of cesarean section in the planned vaginal delivery group, which was 40% or more than 40%, uh, with both of these deliveries occurring during labor. So maybe they're saying that the the morbidity to mothers was higher in the planned cesarean group than the planned vaginal delivery group or that, or women that had a vaginal delivery, but because there were 40% of the women in the planned vaginal delivery group that ended up with cesarean. And we know that the morbidity with a cesarean in labor is slightly higher than the morbidity of a scheduled elective cesarean. Mm-hmm. So it made a balance it out. So it's probably better for the mother to deliver vaginally than by cesarean, but they couldn't prove it in this study. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think maybe the the thing that you just said, and many of the twins in our study were born preterm. Yes. Is what you were pointing to earlier is that the longer you stay pregnant, the more likely it is to have oh. um, yeah. uh, negative adver- adverse, adverse outcomes. outcomes. Right. Oh, yeah. That's probably true. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like they learned from the mistakes of the breach term trial. Right. And in conclusion, they found no benefits of planned cesarean section as compared with planned vaginal delivery for the delivery of twins. Mono or monochorionic, diamniotic, or die die between 32 and 38 weeks of gestation if the first twin was in the head down position. So this doesn't take into account first twin breaches, which is a whole other topic for another. So the woman who podcast. had that negative um, comment was her name Karen? Alyssa, I believe. Let's oh, joke. <laughs> yeah, 
we have an Allison, we have a, a Michael, and we have an Alyssa that gave us some really good stuff here. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll read another comment. Should I read another comment? Okay, I'll read one from my, 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 okay. my good friend, Michael, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when I say good friend, I mean not good friend. Yeah, Okay. he's being sarcastic. I'm thinking I'll just cut loose this charlatan for now with a stern warning, fish buying. Stay far away from monochorionic twins and start explaining the differences between the twin types. We will drive you all underground should you wish to ignore us. Trust and believe this. Nurture that, please. That, that sounds like a threat to me. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you're um, you're doing what he asked you to do. I am. Differentiating them, so I am. it. I am. Yeah. And by the way, all the clients that come into me with twins, even if we have a Zoom meeting with a set of twins from Cleveland or something, you know, I use Cleveland all the time as a, <laughs> as my... I don't know why Cleveland just pops into my head and there's no reason, but um, we go through all this stuff, all the stuff that I'm saying. Of course I do. I've watched you counsel twins many, many, many times. Yeah. All right. So I want to just quickly, cause we're going to, I want to get through the ACOG stuff. I've got that. I'll be quick, but I wanted to just give you some of my statistics so far. Cool. If you would like that. Okay. I would love that. All right. So I've had 89 sets of twins at home, mm-hmm. um, of which 62 went into labor which is 81, 81.6%. <laughs> I forgot my glasses again. <laughs> All right. 81.6%. All right. Of the twins in my practice, 85% of them were die, die. And I guess that means the other 15% were mono die. Okay. Mm-hmm. So 62, went in, uh, 62 of twins went into labor that were die, die. We had seven transports. Mm-hmm. All right. Six were primips. One was a multip. Six ended up with a C-section, one ended up with a vaginal birth. Okay. So of the primeps who went into labor, 58% delivered vaginally. So that's close to what their overall was in the um, term breach, not the term breach trial, the, the twin birth study mm-hmm. that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. But multips, I had a 97%, I have a 97% success rate. Great. Essentially one, one, the one multip who didn't deliver vaginally. In the mono die cases, all right, I, have thir- I had 13 women come into the care who were mono-die. Three of them delivered t- uh, uh, developed TTTS mm-hmm. and obviously were transferred out of care. Yep. Two of them ended up with a C-section. One was at 29 weeks. The other one was at 31 weeks. And we had one that went into labor and delivered vaginally at 33 and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. So um, all three of them had the laser surgery with here, I think at least two of them here with Dr. Chimate who's in Pasadena at Huntington, Cool. who does the fetal laser surgery mm-hmm. that we've talked about before we did that. We talked about Nicolaides, I think on one of the podcasts. Yeah. And um, they all got to viability from that. So it's it's great. It's just yeah. one of those marvels so of you, medicine. So they came into care, you caught that they were developing this syndrome, and then they went and had that surgery and had these deliveries in the hospital and the outcomes were good. Yeah, even though the... Uh, even though, um, the all six babies ended up in the NICU for a short period of time. They're all thriving. Great. All right. Awesome. Uh, 10 mono die twins went into labor, nine delivered vaginally, and one was transferred um, for uh, a rest of, not a rest, but exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And ended up, it ended up with, with a cesarean. Uh, mm-hmm. It was not emergent and it was for, and she ended up with a cesarean, which was the plan. And we had great backup for that. We had a physician who was willing to take her if she came in. But um, the plan was to do a C-section. So she ended up with C-section. So again, uh, 
It can be done. It should be done. Can be done safely. Yeah, well, that's definitely safely. <laughs> <laughs> but it should be done in a, you know, in a setting, ideally, where women can labor as nature intended, as we've described so many times, where they can move about, where they don't have to be restricted in movement, where they don't have to have an epidural. But most of these institutions, if you have twins, you are almost mandated to have an epidural. You can't, you're not allowed to eat. Um, you're constantly being interrupted. Um, everybody's a little nervous around you. So the success rates are going to be lower in the hospital. If they even uh, allow you, there's that word, allow you to deliver vaginally in, at all. Mm -hmm. And a lot of doctors are not even invested in it. And they'll just tell you from the very beginning, when you, when you they find out you have twins at 12 weeks, they'll be planning your C-section at 37 weeks. Right. 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 And you should have this information so that you can make an informed choice of what feels right for you. Right. So I'm, uh, as long as I'm still allowed, I'm going to continue to offer this to people uh, for a consult. It's not for everybody. I've turned away many people, mm -hmm. but of the people that come into care, like I said, about 20, 25% of them will end up being transferred out of care early for a problem. All right. It's not like we ignore them. It's not like we don't do ultrasounds. We, uh, and let me talk a little bit because ACOG goes through the guidelines for that too. So let's get through this because we're going to, we hate running out of time. So this is practice guide, a bulletin number 169 from ACOG from October of 2016. So it's still relatively new for them. All right. Um, fetal and infant morbidity and mortality. There is an approximately five-fold increased risk of stillbirth and a seven-fold increased risk of neonatal death, which primarily due to the complications of prematurity with twins mm -hmm. or, and chorionicity, I would say. And this is an overall rate. This is not individualized. I tend to look at every individual differently. And if the babies are growing concordantly and there's even in monochorionic diamniotic pregnancies, the there's no evidence of TTTS, which is ultrasonography, you can usually pick it up pretty quickly. And mm -hmm. you see diminishing fluid in one twin and rising fluid in another. You see um, disappearing bladder in the little twin or no kidneys in the little twin, that sort of thing. And you can pick it up pretty quickly. And usually it, it, it's going to occur somewhere between 16 and you're going to start to see it sometime between 16 and 22, 23 weeks. So you want to, you want to do frequent ultrasounds on those, on those sets of twins. I think I've said before in a previous podcast that we talk about relative risk and actual risk. Yeah. And the relative risk is they say it's like a five-fold or seven-fold increase in neonatal death. And that is correct. If you look at twins from say 36 weeks to twins at 40 weeks, right? There's, there's about a, a risk of about um, seven per hundred, seven per 10,000 in babies at 36 weeks with twins. And there's a risk of about 46 per, per 10,000 in mm -hmm. 40 week twins. Mm -hmm. That's about a seven fold increase, but 46 per 10,000 is still a 99.54% chance that it's not going to happen. So that's the kind of information you need to give people. You can't be using just relative risk. Yeah. When, when people who are listening are told relative risk by their physician or the doctor says there's a high risk of this, you need to ask them specifics. You need to ask them, what is what does high mean? Yeah, what are the statistics? Okay. I'd like to hear the numbers. Can I see the study? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and if they give you a hard time about that, that should be a red flag. Red flag. Yeah, Multifetal sure. gestations are associated with significantly higher costs in large part because of the costs associated with prematurity. Oops. So um, prematurity would be that they would probably, they would be in the NICU, which is very costly. That's what they're talking about. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. So 
I'm going to skip some stuff because for the sake of time. So chorionicity, all right, a reliable method to diagnose multifield gestations is by ultrasound assessment. And there was a good study that came out in 1993 called the RADIUS trial, which stood for routine antenatal diagnostic imaging with ultrasound, uh, where they, they looked at this. And ultrasonography can be used to determine fetal number, estimated gestational age, chorionicity, and amionicity. We talked about earlier the difference between the chorion yes. and the amion. Uh -huh. um, we've, we've only briefly mentioned in passing mono-mono twins. Mono-mono twins have one chorion and one amion. The twins are in the same amniotic sac. And the big risk for those people is those babies, those people, those people, people babies is they are people actually. Uh, that's an whole other discussion as well. Uh, is the risk of um, twin twin transfusion syndrome is really high in those and also cord entanglement. <laughs> it's like having two phone cords. Or having, so is that why you, you say that it should never be delivered? Yes, they, they shouldn't be delivered vaginally because you don't know what's going to come down and how they're going to come down. And the cords probably are tangled up and it's a, it's a mess. So they should all be delivered by C-section. Usually around 32 weeks is when they're delivered. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because going beyond that, the morbidity just keep, you know, it, it's getting too high. Now, again, I don't know the exact numbers. I, say what's I don't know the exact yeah. numbers, but um, <laughs> whatever they were, they impressed me enough that I would agree with that. So yeah. it had to yeah. be something. Yeah. Okay. Um, assessment of chorionicity is more accurate early in gestation. We know that. Uh, compared with dichorionic twins, monochorionic twins have a higher frequency of fetal and neonatal mortality, as well as morbidity such as fetal and congenital anomalies, prematurity, and fetal growth restriction. Because of the increased rate of complications associated with monochorionicity, determination of chorionicity by late first trimester or early second trimester scan is important for counseling and management of women with multifetal gestations. I totally support that. You troll dogs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Medical complications are more common in women with multifetal gestations than with singleton gestations. That's true. These include hyperemesis, gestational diabetes, hypertension, anemia, hemorrhage, Serine delivery and postpartum depression, as well as preeclampsia. Okay. Yeah. Um, clinical considerations. How is coronicity determined? In one series, the reported sensitivity, specificity, and positivity and negative predictive values for prediction of coronicity by ultrasonography at 14 weeks was 80, uh, 90%, 99.5%, 97.8%, 97.5%, respectively, giving an overall uh, accuracy of 95 plus percent when you do a early, late first, early second trimester scan for chorionicity. So it's very accurate. It's very important. And when ultrasound assessment clearly shows two placentas or differing fetal sex, the, the, the pregnancy is dichorionic. Mm -hmm. You know that for sure. Yeah. Okay. If only one placenta is visualized, the best ultrasonographic characteristic to distinguish chorionicity is called the lambda sign. Some people call it the twin peak sign but it's a triangular projection of tissue with the same echogenicity as the placenta that extends beyond the chorionic surface of the placenta and is indicative of a dichorionic gestation. It looks like a little narrow pyramid climbing, coming off of the placental mm -hmm. bed. I've seen it right with you. Yep. Can adjunctive tests be used to predict spontaneous preterm birth in women with multifetal gestation? So we talk about can you do cervical length measuring? Can you do fetal fibronectin? Mm -hmm. Okay including transvaginal ultrasonography, cervical length, digital examination, fetal fibronectin screening, and home uterine monitoring, there are no interventions that have been shown to prevent spontaneous preterm delivery. The use of these screening methods in the asymptomatic twin women uh, is not recommended. Great. So okay. don't leave them alone. Yep. If they don't have if symptoms. They, yeah. You, you know, that's why we ask them. 
any change in your vaginal discharge, any bleeding, you know, any more cramping than usual, blah, blah, blah. Which we talk at all women right. about. Yeah. Does prophylactic cerclage do any good? Answer? No. Has not been shown to be beneficial. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How about routine hospitalization and bed rest for, for most twins? No. Right. Thank you for A that. Cochrane review demonstrated no benefit from routine hospitalization or bed rest for women with an uncomplicated twin pregnancy. So that includes bed rest, by the way. So to tell a woman who's got uncomplicated twin pregnancy that, oh, you're, you know, you're 28 weeks now, you're in that really critical time, you need to get off your feet, stay in bed. You don't need to do that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. They don't talk about pelvic rest. They don't talk about intercourse. All right. But I would say that intercourse is something that you don't have to worry about either, unless you're developing symptomatic symptoms. Symptoms. I'm a fan. My all my clients know I talk. I'm I'm a fan. Okay, we'll, we'll do another podcast on how about how about prophylactic tributylene? It's a medication. No, no. Yeah, that's good. There is no role for prophylactic use of tocolytic agent in women with multifetal pregnancies. The beta mimics like uh, tributylene they're talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, does progesterone treatment decrease the risk of preterm birth in women with multifetal pregnancies, including twins and triplets? I would say no, but yeah. it might be yes. No, no. no. Okay. Isn't this interesting? This is ACOG coming out and they're looking at this stuff. And some of this stuff is level B and level C evidence, but nonetheless, they're at least coming out with a statement that says all these things that we tell women to do sometimes, we give them this expensive uh, injectable 17-hydroxy uh, caproate hydroxyprogesterone caprate medication. <laughs> I didn't say that five well, times. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking, this whole podcast is me talking, so it's yeah. got my mouth. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, progesterone treatment does not reduce the incidence of spontaneous preterm birth in unselected women um, with twin or triplet gestation, therefore not recommended. Okay. So let's see, let's go to, are multifetal gestations with discordant fetal growth at risk of adverse outcomes? Say it one more time. Oh, man. I know. You're scanning. Okay. Are multifetal gestations with discordant fetal growth at risk for adverse outcomes? No. Okay. Well, there's two things about that. And the okay. answer is yes and no. Okay. Okay. Discordant fetal growth in women is with multifetal gestation is most commonly defined as a 20% difference in estimated fetal weight. You've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Okay. Several studies have examined this population have shown that multifetal gestations with discordant but appropriate for gestational age growth are not an increased risk of fetal or neonatal morbidity or mortality. So they're, if they're on their growth curve, even though they're different. Exactly. Yes, got it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I say this all the time. All right. Sometimes you see, even at nine weeks, you see a difference in size. Mm-hmm. All right. Does that, does that mean that, you know, they're, if they're discordant at nine weeks, they're going to be discordant pretty much the whole time. Right. And sometimes that you'll end up with an eight pounder and a, and a five and a half pounder. Mm-hmm. Now that's certainly, that's like 30 some percent discordant. But both babies are doing fine. You might survey them a little bit more. You might do biophysical profiles a little bit more on B, but it's not growth restricted. Ben, remember that we talked about growth restriction before I have ad nauseum that just because a baby is small doesn't mean it's growth restricted, all right? It has to be falling off its growth curve. It has to have other signs that it's, it's, it's struggling. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if a baby is small, but the next time you have them come in in two to three weeks or whatever, and it's... Still small, but it's if but the curve is exactly where you expected it to be. That baby is not growth restricted. Okay. Yeah. Or it, it might be small for gestational age or whatever you want to call it, but it's not in trouble. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. Um, Growth-restricted twins have a higher perinatal mortality and morbidity rates when compared with age-matched singletons. Of course, that's true. Thus, although there is no clear evidence of increased neonatal morbidity or mortality with twin discordant alone, fetal growth restriction or other abnormalities such as fetal anomalies or oligohydramnios in the setting of a discordance may be a risk factor for adverse perinatal outcomes. So again, individualizing your care, looking at each set of twins with ultrasound um, to determine whether or not that the discordance between the babies is pathologic or not pathologic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is the role of antepartum fetal surveillance in a dichorionic pregnancy? So when you have diet, when you have non-identical twins, when should you use fetal surveillance? Wait, oh, I don't know the twins. Well, what would be your guess? Giving you a clue. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> okay. Ultrasound examination between 18 to 22 weeks of gestation allows for survey of the fetal anatomy. Fetal growth in uncomplicated twin pregnancies occurs at a similar rate as singletons until about 28 to 32 weeks of gestation when the growth rate of twins begins to slow. For women with dichorionic twin gestations, there is no evidence-based recommendation on the frequency of fetal growth scans after 20 weeks of gestation. However, it does seem reasonable that serial ultrasound surveillance be performed every four to six weeks in the absence of evidence of fetal growth restriction. So there's no data to support doing more ultrasounds after 20 weeks in, in dichorionic, diamniotic twins. We do recommend it because I think of our insecurity. Yeah, I'm gonna say, I was saying that's confusing. The use of antipartum testing or umbilical artery Doppler ultrasonography in women with uncomplicated dichorionic multifetal gestations is not associated with improved perinatal outcome. That's good to know. Right. So again, we over-test. And in, in algorithmic medical groups, they will say, you've got twins, you go into this protocol but I have die-die twins, all right? Why do I have to do what the mono-die twins are doing? Because all twins go into our protocol. Right, right. yep. Right. So what about monochorionic placentation? How is that managed? Not a quiz. Women with monochorionic pregnancies are followed more closely, of course. Twin-twin mm-hmm. transfusion syndrome. This disorder occurs in approximately 10 to 15% of the monochorionic diamniotic pregnancies and results from the presence of arteriovenous anastomosis Say that a few times fast <laughs> in a monochorionic placenta. So 10 to 15%. I had three out of 13. So mine was actually higher than that, but, but it's, my numbers are way too small. Yeah. I should have said that when I was reading my numbers, that my numbers are way too small to draw any statistical conclusion from them. And I want to reiterate that, that being that I've only had 89 women with twins come into care, right. Which is probably more than just about anybody in the country, as far as home twins, other than um, the midwives who are grandfathered in, who've been doing it for 40 years. Um, that's not anywhere near what your numbers you need to get statistical significance. So it's just observational. What I'm saying with my numbers was observational. Right. Okay. Twin-twin transfusion syndrome usually presents in the second trimester and serial ultrasonography evaluation approximately every two weeks beginning at approximately 16 weeks of gestation should be considered. There is no evidence that routine assessment with umbilical artery Doppler is beneficial in the absence of growth or fluid discordances. So doing it, if monodye twins do not have evidence of TTTS, they should be treated like diodye twins. Mm -hmm. They should be scanned a little more frequently because as we've said, TTTS can show up at any time, but I have it on good authority from a good maternal fetal medicine friend of mine that if they don't have it by 26 to 28 weeks, it probably isn't going to show up. Yeah. Not zero, but it probably isn't going to show up. So you can give the, your family much more reassurance on that. Um, 
Are there special considerations for timing and route of delivery in women with multifetal gestation? Well, we're talking twins here. The risk of perineal mortality begins to increase again in twin pregnancies at approximately 38 weeks, and we've discussed that. Mm -hmm. The following recommendations for timing of delivery seem reasonable for women with uncomplicated twin pregnancies. Women with uncomplicated die-die twin gestations can undergo delivery at 38 weeks of gestation. Women with uncomplicated mono-die pregnancies can undergo delivery between 34 weeks and 38 weeks of gestation. And women with uncomplicated monochorionic, monoamniotic twin gestations can undergo delivery between 32 and 34 weeks of gestation. Now, again, these are guidelines. You know that in my practice, if, the, if babies go beyond 38 weeks with twins, we let them go. Yes. We do begin testing a little sooner than we would with singletons, but we do let them go. And if everything seems fine, we trust that the biophysical profile is. Do you do them twice a week? Not until Once they, not, no, not, not until, not unless there's a problem or until they get to about 39 and a half, 40 weeks. Yeah. And I haven't had many twins go beyond. But I'm, that's sooner than you would with um, a singleton. So I'm asking, uh, once I, you start, do you do twice a week? No, because no, they're not necessarily even indicated. I sort of do them partly for my own comfort zone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I don't need to make them come in twice a week unless yeah. there's something unusual about them. Okay. Again, we're giving them cues to watch for like mm -hmm. we always do. Mm -hmm. The optimal route of delivery in women with twin gestations depends on the type of twins, fetal presentation, gestational age, and experience of the clinician performing the delivery. Oh, that was a continuation of the sentence. <laughs> right. So again, we talk about it. It talks about the type of twins and having an experienced practitioner. There's no substitute for having an experienced practitioner. To much my sadness, we're not training experienced practitioners anymore. And that's why we're getting people out there who think they know everything because they're told by their doctor that this is not something that is anyone with any sense is going to do. Yeah. And then they just repeat that information. Exactly. Right. A twin gestation in and of itself is not an indication for cesarean delivery. Imagine that. Okay. Women with monoamniotic twin gestation should undergo cesarean delivery. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. In diamniotic twin pregnancies at 32 weeks of gestation or later, with a preventing fetus, excuse me, preventing, a presenting fetus that is vertex, Regardless of the presentation of the second twin, vaginal delivery is a reasonable option and should be considered, provided that an obstetrician with experience in, in internal pedalic version and vaginal breech delivery is available. Okay. So I'd like to comment on that because, of course, ACOG is not going to come out and say that first twin breaches should be supported vaginally because they're already telling you that there aren't enough skilled practitioners. Yeah. But there are many articles, many of them published, several of them published in the Green Journal, which is ACOG's journal that supports vaginal delivery of a breech first twin in, in a proper presentation. So they're not going to say that here because it's not their purveyance, but they're saying that for certain vaginal delivery of twins who reach a certain to 32 weeks where the first twin is head down should be given a trial, like, be allowed to deliver vaginally. Mm -hmm. And lastly, okay, women with one previous low transverse cesarean delivery who are otherwise appropriate candidates for a twin vaginal delivery may be considered candidates for the trial of labor after cesarean delivery. And by the way, that the term they use may be considered, that's their way of saying it's reasonable, right? They're not, they use that term because they don't want to make doctors feel bad for not offering it, but you shouldn't punish doctors for offering it. Yes. Okay. And it should be offered. And if you're not offering it to them, you should give them the information that says it is reasonable. I'm just not going to offer it to you. You should try going someplace else. Yeah, if you know someone else, you right. can do it. 
Uh, and then always, as we've known, women with multifetal gestations are also increased risk of uterine atony, postpartum hemorrhage, and emergent hysterectomy, right? We haven't had that yet, but we've had many postpartum, postpartum hemorrhages, right? Mm -hmm. Which we're always prepared for. There you go. So um, I have one more, I think I have one more um, comment that I should probably read. I'm gonna read this one. So this is from Allison Kirkland, I believe. Dr. Stewart, can you please clarify for me how you treat each different class of twins, di-di, mono-di, and mono-mono? I just did, okay? I can't do it on a Facebook post. Right. But in future Facebook posts, maybe we'll link this podcast. Well, that'd be nice. You can just link it. Yeah. Yeah. Watch this podcast. Troll. Give us a five-star rating. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but how, yeah, don't give us a one-star rating. <laughs> I'm aware that there are several differences as a mom whose warrior babies battled TTTS, could you confirm, please, your routine for scanning, in particular, the latter two types of twins above? So we'll she's pretty respectful. So far. Yeah, so far. I've read only the one scan is offered, and boy, am I glad it wasn't in, I wasn't in your care, because thanks to a crap team of professionals capitalized, I have two loving babies. Would you just have deemed that my body failed me and caused miscarriage? I have no idea what she's talking about. Okay, but that's typical of sometimes when people go on a, on a troll rant. Mm -hmm. is they know they know what they're talking about but they're not communicating well mm -hmm. i was 18 weeks at diagnosis so she's talking about ttts so i would have just diagnosed her and then let her go right with her ttts and ignored her completely and then said that it was just nature yes, i think it's right. what she's trying to i'm say. actually shocked that you haven't been more specific in your post this is perhaps a little dangerous and misleading and then i responded to allison and i said facebook for me is not a forum for a lecture or research or twin chorionicity it is to report options and promote curiosity and share experience. Individualization of care to each family and long consultation with informed consent of all options is the midwifery model of care we practice. Don't make assumptions about the quality and expertise we bring to our clients based on a Facebook post. If you choose to do so and be negative, that's on you. Well, Good. yeah, but that's what you learn not to, um, not, not to respond. That was not disrespectful in any way what no, I said, okay? No, no. Uh, Dr. Stuart Fishbine, I believe Facebook should be factual, precise, and science and evidence-based. Okay. <laughs> okay. Therefore, you may wish to take more care when being so hapdash in respect of chorionicity as it could not be, and it could be the difference between a living pair or not. You should be specific about the types of twins you're aiming your posts at. I don't choose to be negative or make assumptions. Well, yeah, you do actually. I choose to be research and actual facts and make informed choices based on medical evidence. Exclamation. Exclamation. Well, here you go. Here's some, here's some very specific evidence. We're very happy to have given it. Okay. Um, so I wanted to, we went, we went in a very specific direction about twins when you told me we were going to do twins. That we were going to just do more general. No, I had this 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 bug up my butt. Yeah, so it was very specific. But what I did want to prepare for you guys was just from a midwifery perspective, and one of them was the thing I I interjected while we were talking. But the which other, was what? Which was what? About connecting with the second baby oh. during delivery. That that's sometimes why that baby could be having more challenges. So, um, but two things that are um from a midwifery perspective that I think we would focus on with twins that would be different because we believe it's a variation of normal. So we're going to treat that mom like any other mom um, is breastfeeding. There's additional challenges and need for support during postpartum, which I won't get into today. And then diet. 
So I thought I would just mention um, a really good resource for diet is um, the Brewer's Diet. So drbrewerspregnancydiet.com and they have specifically Brewer Twin Pregnancy Diet. And there's a lot of specifics in there about how you can manage your um, nutrition for a twin pregnancy. But the bottom line is that you want to have 30 grams more protein for each additional fetus. So if you had more than two, you would add more protein. Protein is, you know, from a midwifery perspective, protein is a, is a big um, deciding factor in terms of keeping things away, like preeclampsia and stuff like that. So protein is a, a so how much protein, focus. how much protein should a singleton mom 75 to hundred grams of protein a day. So in, in real, in regular food, say not vegan, but regular food, what is the easiest way to count? How many hamburgers is that? <laughs> the easiest way to counsel somebody is, and you want to have, be having, um, multiple meals a day. So small, more yes. frequent meals also helps with um, nausea. So protein is also a way to help with nausea. So five palm sized portions of protein. So a handful of nuts, an egg, a handful of like a, like a handful of cheese, a small portion of cottage cheese, five small burgers. <laughs> yeah. Little sliders. Yeah, five sliders. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, White Castle burgers. Five yeah. White Castle burgers. So that's for that's for a singleton. So <laughs> um, for for a twin pregnancy, you would want somewhere between 105 and 130. So you'd add two more small hamburgers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, um, it's just even a picture like yeah, like a small hamburger. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing that is really important is salt to taste. Sometimes we talk about. Um, with preeclampsia and stuff like that, the, the belief is when you have high blood pressure that you should avoid salt. Avoid salt, but Not the, true. and especially they were talking. I was looking at it today, specifically during hot times or even in cold climates, you lose a lot of salt. Um, so making sure that you're salting to taste is a, is another big one. Yeah, I think the salt restriction thing is more for people with you know with chronic hypertension over over yeah you know when you're older and you have chronic hypertension. yeah 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 but that. That's different for pregnancy. So it's important for people to know. So check that out. If you are interested in knowing more, or if you're a twin mom who's listening, that's a great way to keep yourself healthy during your pregnancy. Thank you. You're welcome. And then I can do a review whenever you want. Yeah, we better do a review because we're running out of time. I have a brief dumb doctor dog do thing. All right, let me do it real quick. Okay. Uh, I got a notice from the American Association of Birth Centers, which is a organization that um, a lot of our birth center uh, midwives belong to, some don't. And there's reasons for both that, but the American Association of Birth Centers is aware of a recent research presented at the 2021 American College of OBGYN clinical and scientific meeting recently, which reported that safety concerns for consumers receiving care at a freestanding birth center. The research is not published in peer reviewed literature and is not publicly accessible at this time. For this reason, uh, AABC is unable to comment on the merits of the findings. However, the current state of the science constituting decades of research regarding the birth center model of care supports the safety of birth centers, birth for both mothers and babies. Most recently, research from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Strong Start for Mothers and Newborns Initiative demonstrated that consumers receiving care within the birth center model had better experiences of care and similar, in some cases, superior birth outcomes while achieving lower costs. So in an era where maternal health and organizations have seen unprecedented interdisciplinary cooperation 
to address the maternal health crisis in the United States, it is inappropriate for the media to sensationalize a conference presentation. It has been previously acknowledged that widespread media reporting of research presented at scientific meetings should be discouraged or interpreted with caution. According to the Association of Healthcare Journalists, it is questionable ethics to publish inflammatory and sensational news stories prior to them being peer reviewed. Such publication exploits a traumatic and rare issue relating to the 3.6 million childbearing people and their newborn, childbearing people, oh my God, and their newborns annually in the United States. Yes, great, I love it. Uh, except for the- Yeah, yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway, I, I don't like that part, but I, I think that the idea of using basically a poster presentation yeah. in some side room at the ACOG meeting, wherever it was, and, and then and then the media writing about it. Irresponsible. Totally irresponsible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dumb doctor dogma. See, not necessarily dumb doctors, not dumb dogma, dumb journalists. Today's dumb journalists. Well, every day could be dumb journalists. <laughs> okay, what do you got? Um, so I'm gonna read a review. Is this from one of our trolls? No, it's a five-star review. Okay. Um, and as always, I will remind you that. We really love it if you can, some people send us private notes and we love that too, but when you put a review on the podcast apps, um, especially as as Dr. Fishbein (laughs) says, five stars, um, then more people can find this information and can find the podcast and it's our commitment to um, get as much of this information out as possible to support people in having confidence and informed choice. If you put your name and where you you um, are from, that helps us out as well when we read these out, because all I see is Kalia111. So I don't know who that is, but thank you so much. She says, I'm so grateful for the way that these two share their incredible knowledge. I feel so much more informed and also confident in my own knowledge. Dr. Stu and Bliss discuss topics that have never sat well with me regarding hospital births and I couldn't be more appreciative of their wisdom and willingness to help. Thank you. That's from. I told you, Kalia. Oh, oh Kalia. One, 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 one. Yeah. Well, I just, I, and I would like to finish by adding that when I give medical information that comes from something that, that I'm not just reading somebody else's information, but talking about it, everything that I do in my practice is evidence-based, right? It's supported in the literature, in the world literature. It may be not the norm doing things at home that other other doctors may not want to do, but there's, there is evidence that supports it in the world literature. And so I I would just like to reiterate that I'm not a cowboy, right? I wouldn't take a family's health or their baby's life at, at risk. I would not put them at risk. No, I would not put you at risk. I would not put my career at risk. Okay. I don't, I don't, understand the passion with which people hate. I don't, I don't understand it. I mean, there are things you can be passionate about, but I don't know. It's just, it just, it's baffling to me. Yeah. One of my favorite um, quotes is from the Reverend from my spiritual center. And he says, be for something and against nothing. And to me, that's the way that I live my life is I'm for something positive and I put out that energy and, and I don't try and get into the conflict of all of that. But if you, if you're passionate about something, find a way to be positive about what it is that you're passionate about. That's, that's where I come from on it. So I'm glad that you 
gave them the science because I think that's what they were asking for. So you actually, you know, specified and gave them information that is, you know, you can kind of sink your teeth. Yeah, but do, but do I owe, a, uh, do I owe them a response on a forum such as Facebook? It's too hard. It's with, with as many people that write to oh us, my God. Like, there's no way we couldn't have our own lives. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, if I post on breach, I'll get the, I'll get the breach trolls out there. Yeah. Yeah. V-back, you get the V-back trolls out there. You can't, can't respond. I can't give informed consent lectures with, with every picture. Yeah. So this is great. So now we have the information out there and we can, we can put it in your link tree and people can check it out. And as we always say, you know, Vaginal twin birthing, home twin birthing, it may not be for everybody, but informed decision-making is. And with that, we'll say bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 